Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. A little heavier word to start with this morning, but uh, I have confidence in us. I think we're up for the task. I want to remind you, uh, maybe some of you don't need reminding about this, but the church has not always done a great job talking about sin and talking about it with grace and with truth and understanding. Um, maybe, maybe you grew up in a community where sin was sort of thrown around like a grenade or used uh, as a weapon of a sort. That's not what we're going to do today. Today, I envision being more like a conversation that you would have with your doctor. If you go see your doctor and they say to you, hey, Joe, your cholesterol is a bit of an issue. We need to talk about this. Stan, I, I think you need to change your diet up a little bit, buddy. Things are starting to get a little rough. This is what we're doing today. We're having a sincere conversation that's leading toward health, not toward shame and guilt. So uh, if you kind of had your amygdala and your lizard brain kick into overdrive when you heard the word sin, that's okay. You're in good company. We can all experience that to a degree. But I believe that uh, we will be able to have this conversation well today because the scriptures call us to it. The scriptures take sin seriously, so we need to take sin seriously. So uh, that's kind of my preamble for us today. Now I want to talk about waffles, because anytime you talk about sin, you got to talk about waffles. This is uh, the waffle maker that my wife and I got when we got married. It still works. Thanks be to God. It has been well used. And so when my son Will was born, one of the things that we discovered that he loved a lot were not these waffles, but the Eggo waffles, right, that you buy in the freezer section. Many of you survived college off of freezer waffles, did you not? These are the things that sustained your life for a long period of time. So Will loved these waffles. He would just eat them by the truckload. And as he got older, he started to learn that waffles don't just come from the freezer, they can come from here. And so there's actually a picture, I couldn't find it this week, there's a picture of him and my dad making waffles together when he was little, little, like he's standing up on one of those high stools that a lot of you have in your kitchen so your kids can kind of look up on the counter and see what's going on. So there's my dad and there's Will and they're making waffles together. He's always loved waffles. Well now he's 10 and 10 year olds can kind of sort of make their own waffles. It's amazing, he will get up in the morning, he's an early riser, don't know where that comes from, and he will come into the kitchen and he can get out all the necessary ingredients to make waffles. He can get out the big bag of pancake mix, right, that we get from Costco. That's no small heft for a 10-year-old. He can get out the vegetable oil. He can get out an egg. He can get the mixer. And then the most important ingredient in our family, of course, is chocolate chips. There's got to be just a whole bunch of chocolate chips thrown in there. So Will, oftentimes, when I wake up on days that I sleep in, will have waffles made in our kitchen. So he'll have the waffle iron out on the counter, and then around the corner, he'll have a book. So he'll spoon stuff into the waffle iron, open it, right, spray it down, close it, and then he'll read his book for a little while. And then he'll open it up, take the waffles out, put them on a plate, pour more batter in there, keep reading the book, repeat the process. If you'd like to hire him for parties, come talk to me. Now, there's a presumption in us letting our 10-year-old make waffles. The presumption is, is that he's going to put together the right ingredients. He's going to figure out that, you know, you need to have an egg, and it doesn't taste very good if you don't have an egg. You need to have the right amount of vegetable oil too much. It doesn't taste very good. But what if there was a universe of possibility where Will didn't make it with the right ingredients? What if, you know, instead of an egg, he put in uh, a mushroom? I mean, I like mushrooms, but not in my waffles. I don't think that would taste very good. What if there is an element in the mixture 
that wasn't good for us. Like what if someone in our family developed an allergy to something that's in that pancake mix and all of a sudden we're eating it and we're eating it, we probably have waffles once or twice a week, and we're eating it regularly and it starts to make us sick. And we're going, wait, wait, what's going on here? What changed in the ingredients? What, what got messed up over there? That would be rough. That would be difficult. One of the ways that I want us to consider thinking about sin is like the waffle mix. Sin is a pollutant that has gotten into our world, has gotten into our lives, and enough of it over time, just like something bad in something that you eat frequently, it will mess with you and eventually it will kill you. Sin is not something to kid around about, but it is something that so often in our modern world we just don't take seriously. You don't hear TED Talks about sin. You don't hear podcasts about this necessarily outside the Christian sphere. We live in a Western, individualistic, postmodern society. So people sort of laugh at sin, right? They don't really think that it's a thing. Uh, especially on the West Coast and the particular places that we live, there's a post-Freudian emphasis on the fulfillment of desire as being the highest goal of life. Well, how can something be sinful if all you're doing is fulfilling your desire? This is what Freud taught, right? And all of our sins and our failings come from suppressing our desires. The milieu, the place that we live, does not give us permission to talk about things that are inherently broken. Humanism doesn't make room for this. This is why utopian communities always, always fail, because they don't make room for sin. They don't accommodate the fact that human beings, when given the opportunity, are going to be illogical, selfish, and we're going to mess stuff up. Our waffle mix is going to be really bad, left up to our own devices. So some of you have grown up with this understanding, and you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Some of you are going, I did not sign up for this this morning. Like, thanks a lot, buddy. Some of you are going to look at your waffle mix, your waffle maker a little bit differently after this. You're welcome. What I want to say about this is today's text goes deeply into two very important themes. We're going to touch on both equally today. The first theme is that sin pollutes us, and it pollutes our world, and it pollutes our lives, and we need to talk about that. The second theme, which is so central to the message of John, of this letter, 1 John, is that the glory of Jesus is greater than any power, including the power of sin. Jesus is greater Say that with me. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Do you believe this? Jesus actually is greater than what we've just talked about in terms of sin. And we're going to get into this a little bit more today. This is our sermon series. We've been talking about 1 John. We're called to love God and we're called to love others. And in order to do that well, we need to be able to have honest conversations about difficult things like sin. So that's what we're getting into today. Our outline, if you're a note taker, looks like this. We're going to define our terms. It's always important to be able to have that conversation, knowing what you're talking about. So what is sin? How does the Bible talk about it? Second, we're going to set the context for 1 John, for the passage that Julie read for us. We're going to talk about practice, 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 right? Because how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. We're going to talk about what are we practicing. And then finally, we're going to practice honesty together. So let's begin by looking at the way the Bible talks about sin. From the very beginning, there was a place for people in God's world that was perfect. It was perfectly ordered. Human beings were able to relate to God without any kind of interruption or mediation. We had this set up for us from the word go. And then in Genesis chapter 3, something changed. A object, a factor came in that wasn't there before. This is from Genesis 3, chapter 1. The serpent, who's the devil, was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God has made. One day, this serpent, who could talk, said to the woman, Eve, did God really say 
you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden. Now, we could spend a long time talking about the context for this passage and setting it up. I'm assuming there's a level of familiarity here that we don't need to do that. But here's what I want to point out. The first couple words of this question, did God really say? It opens the door for something that had never before existed in the history of humankind, and that was a lack of trust a brokenness of trust. How many of us have been in a relationship with someone that we were dating, or a friend, or a colleague, and you assumed that you had a basis of trust until you didn't, until your trust was broken? It's almost irreparable, isn't it? It fractures the nature of relationships to have trust be broken. This hadn't happened to human beings before Genesis chapter 3, and now it is broken into the world through the efforts of the enemy. This childlike faith, like all of us who are parents see in our children, where they trust you, where they know that you're there for them, it is broken after this moment. Sin is simply a failure to trust God. St. Ignatius of Loyola puts it this way, sin is ultimately a refusal to believe that what God wants is my happiness and my fulfillment. That what God wants for you and me is not to give us a bunch of rules and not to keep us in boxes, but instead is to give us the greatest gift he could give us, fullness of life, but that he would see that properly. That's where we fail to trust him. That's where our individualism has not served us well. What do you mean God knows better than I know what I need? What do you mean someone else understands me better than I understand myself? In a Christian worldview, that's square one, that God understands, that God walks with us, that God knows everything about us, and he knows what we need when we need it, and we can trust him. So sin is when we choose to break trust with God. Sin is when we say, I know I shouldn't go do this, but I'm going to go do it anyways because I think I know what's better than what God knows. And like a bad ingredient in a pancake mix, it messes everything else up, and we can't fix it. We can't. We don't have the ability to extricate it from the mixture. We need a new mix. We need something to be made for us to get us out of it. So Let's hold to that, and now we're going to talk about the context for the letter that we just read from 1 John. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but I'll catch us up again. 1 John is a letter that was written by John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, not Jesus' cousin. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation were all written by the same guy. The timeline is somewhere around AD 60 to 80, meaning that the church, which was birthed with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the church is like along in its years. It's not this established institution. There aren't big buildings yet, but it's a movement. In this time, the Roman Empire is starting to recognize that Christianity could be a real problem for them because they only worship one God, and they won't worship Caesar as God, and they won't just participate in things that the Roman Empire thought was good. They actually had morals. They had standards. They had an ethic of their sexuality that was completely different, a totally counterculture. And if you're the Roman Empire and you want to hold on to power, counterculture ain't good for you. So the Romans start to drive the Christians out of the Roman Empire, and they land on the other side of the Aegean Sea in what is now known as modern-day Turkey. And we will take time and pray for Turkey and for Syria and the tragedy of the earthquake in a little while. The gospel goes forth into these previously uncharted places on the other side of the Aegean Sea. And as is true in almost any religious system, when you get far away from the mothership, when you get away from kind of the hub of where your religion began, things can start to get a little wonky. 
things can get a little bit diluted. If you grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, you know everything runs through Grand Rapids, Michigan. And you get a little further away from Grand Rapids, Michigan, things get a little bit wonky, right? I'm kind of being facetious, but not. When the church landed in a remote place, other ideas about Jesus and the person and work of Jesus Christ start to come up. This was an early Christian heresy known as Gnosticism. You could look it up on your own time. Most people's eyes glaze over when you get into too much detail about this, so I'll be very brief. There were two primary heresies that were being taught that John is writing this letter to address. He wants to help the church back off from heresy and start living into the reality of the gospel. Gnosticism proclaimed a whole bunch of different things that sounded like Jesus, that sounded like faith in Jesus Christ, but actually wasn't that. Two primary things. One was that Jesus wasn't fully human, that he was God, that he was God in, in a human form, but that he kind of pretended to be human, right? He told people he was hungry, but he wasn't really hungry. This is because the Gnostics rejected the importance of the body, the fact that we're created beings. They said, no, 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 that's not good. Don't take care of your body. Don't do any of that. It's all going to go away anyways. We've heard that, haven't we, in our modern world? This heresy still exists. Jesus was fully God and was fully human and is fully God and is fully human, but the Gnostics didn't believe that. They didn't like that. The second thing that they didn't want to have be part of the church in this movement was that they didn't think sin was that big of a deal. If your body is going to pass away anyways, why does it matter how you treat other people? It, it, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Maybe we've heard a version of this in the very famous line, do whatever you want to do as long as no one else, what? Gets hurt. That is the ethic of our day. Gnosticism ain't dead, you guys. It's still around. And you can go read about that on your own time or come see me and I can give you some resources about it. But the problem, and John knew this, as a leader in the church, as someone who had walked with Jesus, who had literally been in the same room with Jesus over and over and over again, John knew that if the church started to deviate from the truth of Jesus, the church would die. A movement founded on lies will not last. Any movement founded on lies will not last. This is one of the reasons that I still believe in the church, even though <laughs> we are flawed, we have messed things up, we, myself, as leaders, have made tons of mistakes. If this that we sit in, if this institution was built on lies, we wouldn't be here. It would never have made it this far. So there is truth that we must encounter when we come together in the church. Whether you identify as a Christian or not, you came here and you're encountering the truth right now. And a place that was built on lies would not stand the test of time. Jesus said it himself, a house built on sand can't stand. Only a house built on rock, built on truth. John knew that the church was at a critical turning point, and so he wrote this letter to address them and address their heresy. But the way that he chose to do it, I think, is so brilliant rhetorically. There's nothing in this letter that feels like he's pounding on them, saying, stop it with your heresy, stop it with your heresy. No, instead, he says things like verse 7, dear children, don't let anyone deceive you. Hey, you're smarter than this, Will. <laughs> don't believe this Gnostic nonsense. Julie, you know better. Don't come on. Does that really sound like Jesus Christ? No, no, no. This is Jesus Christ. He's pointing toward the positive. He is aiming toward the glory and majesty of Jesus as a means to say, does that sound like the lies over there? No, 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 no. We need to go over here toward the truth. 
He's counting on the people that he's writing this letter to to have hearts and minds that are listening for the truth. And to this day, it is still a good practice within the church to listen and discern together when we are listening to the truth or when we're listening to something that's just a little bit off from the truth. We'll talk about that next week when we get to chapter 5 and talk about idols. It's going to be a fun week next week. Buckle up. Now, we need to talk about practice, okay? So within this text, there are two major themes. There's the theme of sin and how pervasive and pollutant it is, and there's the, I would argue, greater theme of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. If you look at each line in our text today, they're couplets. Almost every line is a couplet. One word about sin and one word about Jesus Christ. It's brilliant. But one thing that John is emphasizing heavily throughout this is that it is not simply the presence of sin that's a problem for human beings. It's a problem, but it's the practice. It's the ordering of our lives around a repetition of events that will lead us not toward life, but toward death. The text gives a couple of impossible things. Maybe you heard that as Julie read it for us. I was really struck by that. My original title for this was about those impossibilities, one of which is in verse 6. If you have your Bibles, look at it with me. Anyone who lives in Jesus will not sin. I don't know about y'all, but I swung and missed on that one this week. Like, if I claim to follow Jesus Christ, and yet I had a week like I had where there was plenty of sin, what does that mean? How is that even possible? The point that John is trying to make is not to live without any sin ever, ever, ever in your life. That is actually impossible. The point that John is making is Jesus did that for us. Jesus brought the perfection. Jesus brought the flawless track record before God the Father. Jesus calls us to address sin and look very carefully at each of our own hearts. He doesn't want us to sort of flutter away at sin. No. But he certainly doesn't expect us to be perfect. Perfect is the enemy of the good. You ever heard that? It's true here, too. It's true with our souls. This text is meant to make us think, that is impossible. I cannot live that way. But Jesus Christ did it for me. And he gave me that gift. By the way, that's the gospel. If you need a good reminder of the gospel this week, there it is. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. We cannot make the waffle mix be untainted by sin. But Jesus can. And he does that for us. The challenge is not be perfect all the time. The challenge is practice the righteousness and the justice and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, with your family, in your work, in your very real existence. How many of you have been here recently? Anybody know where this is? What is it? Benaroya Hall, one of the great concert venues in the Pacific Northwest. Church, how do you get to Benaroya Hall? Practice, practice, practice. How do you get better at piano? How do you think Suzanne got so great at piano? Practice. How do you train for a half marathon, Emily? Practice. You get out there and you get your mileage up and your feet hurt and you're tired and you got to eat salt, but that's how you get better for your half marathon. How do my kids on my baseball team get better at baseball? We have a tee. We put a wiffle ball on it and they swing into that wiffle ball and they go, that's not very cool. And I go, no, but you're getting better. You're getting better. Your stroke's looking better. Your swing's getting better. The way to build a life that you actually want to have is through practice. And what the text warns us against is making a practice of sin. This is where perfection is not the goal. Practice is the goal. Look at this. A practice of sin leads to a performance of death. 
You want to practice for a life that is holy and good and in Jesus Christ? You need to address the sin that's in your life. I do too. Because a practice of sin leads to a performance of death. In verse 8, it says this. You can follow along in your, in your own Bible if you'd like. When people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who's been sinning since the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. We talked about that. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. When people keep on sinning, it's in continuation. It is not a one-time thing. It is a process over and over again. We've all struggled with this. The question is, what do you want to do about it? Do you want to participate with Jesus? Because he came to destroy the works of the devil. He didn't come to say, oh, it's okay, you know, that's all right, don't worry about it. No, he came to say, hey, you have this problem in your life. How's that going for you? Do you want to deal with it? Do you want to join me in the work of dealing with it? Look at verse 9, it continues. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning. They don't show up over and over again to a situation where they go, oh, I really struggled with this last time, and then they sin again, and then they fall into brokenness again and again. Remember, sin is broken trust with God. Sin is what St. Ignatius of Loyola said. It's not believing that God has the best for me. It's believing that I have the best for me. What happens when you and I practice sin? We get better at it. We get better at it. My question is, do you want to keep getting better at it? That glowing rectangle that's in your pocket, would you just take it and hold it up? You have a choice about what goes on that glowing rectangle. You have a choice about how you use it. It is not designed to keep your eyes off of it. It is designed to draw your eyes into it. There are certain apps that I used to have on my little glowing rectangle that I do not have on my little glowing rectangle anymore. Partially because they're a distraction, they're a time suck. I, could, I would look at my screen time report every week and feel incredibly guilty. But they were distracting me from things that I need to be about. It is so easy to find an image or a video of whatever you want on your phone, is it not? You can be waiting in line in the grocery store and looking at all kinds of things. There are certain apps that used to be on my phone that are not on my phone anymore because they're a distraction. Because I was too prone to practice sin rather than practice, what if I didn't look at my phone? What if I'm waiting in line at the grocery store and I look at the people around me? And I try to take in just this wonder and this marvel that we live in a country where I can go buy food. I'm not going into graphic detail, but those of you who have done the same thing or probably should do the same thing know what I'm talking about. There are things you don't need. There's information or visuals or videos or things that might not be helpful to you. Do you want to do anything about that? Do you want to move away from a practice of sin? I'm not saying I've done it perfectly. I'm just saying there's fewer things on my phone to distract me. Here's a real challenge for you. Did you know that you can put your phone into black and white mode? It's amazing. It is so much less interesting. Try putting it on black and white mode and just see how less intrigued you are by all the fascinating stuff that's out there. It's remarkable. A practice of sin. Where have I practiced sin this week? Where have I looked the other way? Where have I said, eh, it's not that big a deal? And then later on you go, oof, that is a big deal. 
at our men's uh, coffee this last Monday, we talked about uh, kicking the can down the road. Where are you kicking the can down the road in your life? Right? We all do this. We go, oh, there's that project I need to get to. Yeah, I'll get to it later. And some of that's reasonable, right? Like, we all need to kind of prioritize different things in our lives. The reason we talked about kicking the can down the road is it is far too easy for me, and I think for most men especially, to be lazy. To be lazy. The sin of sloth. The sin of not paying attention to the world around us and just kind of drifting through life like whatever. We had a wonderful discussion in my group about the different ways that we're kicking the can down the road. I shared that I've been kicking the can down the road about being intentional with my wife, about setting up date nights and doing things together. And that's a thing we share together. I'm not making it sound like it's all on me. It's a partnership. But I've been lazy about that. And because I told those guys in my group about it, I actually did something about it this week. I've actually been thinking about it a lot more. I'm fine telling y'all about it. I'm not embarrassed by this. So... Do you want to continue to practice being lazy like I was? Or do you want to do something about it? If you're hearing me tee myself up as the model of excellence here, you don't know me very well. I am not the model of excellence. I'm simply giving you examples that I'm trying and I'm going to fail to so that you can be thinking about, geez, what should I be trying? I want to inspire your thinking. I want to make you think that I'm some perfect person up here. For John, the goal was very clear in this message that he brought to the church. Remind people that you're a child of God. Don't be fooled. You're smarter than that. Don't believe the heresy and reject a practice of sin. He did all of this because he believed in the gospel and he believed that the power of Jesus Christ expressed through the church would change the world. And the church, I believe, has continued to step into this, to be a part of the pattern that God has for us, of renewal, of people's marriages being healed, of addictions being broken, because we have kept coming back to this truth. The practice of sin leads to a performance of death. And we don't want to perpetuate that anymore. So in a moment, we're going to have some time to sit and practice some honesty with God. You are not going to get into groups and confess your sins. You're not going to write stuff on a post-it note. You are going to do this with you and the Lord. But in this room, in this beautiful space, in the context of worship, we're going to have a time to just silently before God name some things that have been weighing us down, some places that maybe we've been kicking the can down the road or where you've been practicing something that you know is not that good for you and maybe you should do something about it. I want to tell you a story about a Swedish diplomat. We're going from waffles to Swedish diplomat. Here you go. You're welcome. His name was Dag Hammarsfeld. Has anyone heard of this guy? He was the second person to hold the post of the United Nations Secretary General in the 1950s. So after World War II, the beginning of the Cold War, this Swedish scholar, economist, diplomat, a humble man, steps into this really important post in the newly formed United Nations. Remember, the UN hadn't been around that long in the 1950s. And he was one of the first statesmen to step into that role and start to work on peace throughout the world. He started to see the United Nations not just as this response to World War II and kind of this places for nations to cooperate, but more of what it is now, where it can help broker peace, where it can be a, a mediator at the table when nations have conflicts with each other. He really carried that vision forward. After uh, uh, Hammersfeld passed away, uh, Sadly, in a plane accident, John F. Kennedy said he was the greatest statesman of our century. 
One of the things that Hammerswold observed was the rise of Nazism in Germany, right? He's in Sweden. He can see right into what's going on over there. And he saw how good people can become evil. He saw how the practice of sin, of treating other people like they were worthless, tore a country apart, tore the continent of Europe apart. And when you see that firsthand, you never really forget it. It changes you. And so even though I'm pretty sure he was not a believer, some of the things that this person had to say are really, really important as we consider sin in our lives and we consider how we want to deal with evil in ourselves and in our world. So I want to offer this quote that he offered because I find it to be incredibly insightful. You cannot play with the animal in you without becoming wholly animal. You can't play with falsehood without forfeiting your right to the truth. And you can't play with cruelty without losing your sensitivity of mind. He who wants to keep his garden tidy doesn't reserve a plot for weeds. How's your garden, church? Is there a plot for some weeds? Is there some stuff that you're dealing with privately? Not many other people know about it. Maybe no one knows about it. And it just needs to come out into the light. Scriptures tell us that what we bring into the light becomes light. That through the power of Jesus Christ, even those dark, shameful places that each of us carries with us, when it's brought out into the light of Christ, it ceases to be darkness. It becomes something different. I'm going to invite Suzanne to uh, return to the piano and begin to lead us. And we're just going to take time and confess. So I invite you to lay aside what's ever in your hands. Put, put your glowing rectangle to the side. Put your Bible down. If you'd like to, I invite you to close your eyes, and we'll just assume a posture of prayer. Maybe you've never done this before, and it feels a little scary. That's okay. This is between you and the Lord. There is no call-outs. There is no asking you to say anything. This is just between you and God. I invite you to join me in just a time of silence as we prepare our hearts to bring before the Lord that which may be like this, a plot for weeds that we have kept in our garden. Jesus, as we enter into this time, we thank you for your strong word. I pray, Father, that as we just um, pause and consider this challenge about the practice of sin, that you would speak to us and minister to us. Uh, Be tender to us, Father. Be kind to us. We need it. I need it. As we begin this time, Father, just let us sit in your presence. Speak to us however you would like. Prepare our hearts so that we can come to you with honesty.
We recognize, Father, that generations ago our ancestors broke trust with you. And we continue to trip and stumble over that broken trust. It's part of our lives and part of our world. So this week, when we look the other way, when we um, didn't take sin very seriously, or when we um, stepped away from something that you clearly don't want for us, we confess that to you in the silence. Hear us as we name the places of broken trust in our lives. Father, we confess our practices to you, whether it's a practice of looking away from people who need help, if it's a practice of overwork or overeating, of laziness, of fear, of using our online presence to perpetuate evil and hatred. There's so many different ways that we could be practicing sin, so help us to name those repeated places of struggle, of pain, of distress, where we are culpable. Hear us in the silence. Jesus, our passage today tells us that you came to rescue us. You came to be perfect so we wouldn't have to be, and you came to break the enemy's power over our lives. Holy Spirit, help us from our hearts, from our souls, to join with Jesus in that work of ending the enemy's power. Bit by bit, moment by moment, how would you have us agree with you, Jesus, and partner with you in rooting out the darkness in each of our lives and in our world. Father, we know your power is so great And you promise in your word that as far as the east is from the west, so far has the penalty of our sins been removed from us when we confess, when we ask for forgiveness. So, Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would allow us to be willing recipients, vessels who long for it. May your forgiveness animate us, ignite us, fuel us for the work you've called us to do in your name and for your glory. May we have compassion when we encounter others for whom the conversation around sin, it's just not even a thing. Let us be ministers to those who need to hear the good news of the gospel as we take it even more deeply to heart. 
Father, we give this time to you. We ask in your name. Amen. Church, I invite you to stand. You stand as a free and forgiven people. Maybe you didn't feel that when you walked in earlier, but you are. As the Father has graciously poured out his love upon all of creation, he poured it out in a special way upon human beings. He said, this is very good. You are very good. He delights in you. We read that from Psalm 18 at the beginning. So out of that delight, out of that joy, out of a fresh reminder of the forgiveness and grace of God, I invite you to sing our final hymn, The Good Words of Amazing Grace. Let us sing together.